I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 8, Just Like Something Else. Before we jump in, I apologize for the delay between episodes. Unfortunately, I've been sick. I was just getting over one cold, and then I got another one. And both of them, to my great distress, seriously impacted my voice. But I'm back, and excited to be recording again. A couple things that might be interesting to you. The first is the This Week in Rust project, which highlights interesting projects in the Rust community. You can follow it at This Week in Rust on Twitter, or subscribe to their weekly email at this-week-in-rust.com. The second thing is for people interested in more the high-level issues around implementing languages, compilers, even operating systems. And it's not directly related to Rust, but it's pretty interesting nonetheless. Joe Duffy, the current director of Microsoft's Compiler and Language Platform Group, has been blogging about his experience working on a research project at Microsoft called Midori, which involved a safe, highly concurrent language and operating system, and a lot of lessons they learned from that project. The only really direct relationship to Rust is that he calls Rust just plain awesome in one of those posts. But the posts are nonetheless quite informative about how another group of very smart people tackled some of the same challenges that Rust has been. Now, let's do like I promised a few weeks ago and talk about generics and traits. One of the most important lessons you learn when you're writing software is don't repeat yourself. Experience, often painful experience, shows that when you have the same code in more than one place, things will go wrong when you change it. You will change it in one place and forget to change it in another. And change is inevitable in software, so we always try to minimize repetition. Don't repeat yourself. But this can be challenging when we're dealing with different types. Multiplying two floating point numbers, for example, isn't the same as multiplying two integers. Even down at the assembly instruction level, you actually have to implement those differently because you represent integers and floating point numbers differently. Those same kinds of differences even crop up within individual kinds of floating point numbers. As a result, if you have a function that's designed to operate on, say, 32-bit floating point numbers, you actually need a separate function to perform the same operation on 64-bit floating point numbers. And this isn't just a theoretical problem. C, for example, has three functions in its standard library for calculating the power of a number. POWF, POW, and POWL for float, double, and long double types respectively. I actually learned about the long double type while researching for this. Apparently it's usually implemented as an 80-bit floating point number. Who knew? In C, you can just use the double version, because the C compiler will implicitly convert a float to a double, but you shouldn't, and if, when you're done, you cast back to a float, you'll end up truncating the value. Bad practice. Good form is using the type-specific function, and for that reason, Rust, with its much stronger types, won't make implicit casts like that. But following good form whether in the standard library for your language or just in your own code as a developer, means having multiple versions of functions, and we don't want that. More than one implementation almost inevitably means introducing bugs when we do make changes. So we need a way to write functions, and for that matter, other things like types, which can work more generically. 
And of course, if you've used a language newer than C or Fortran, you probably have an idea where we're headed. There are two basic ways of handling this problem. In modern languages, we have either generics or duct typing. We might also talk about interfaces, but there we'd be getting ahead of ourselves. More on that in a minute. In general, the decision to use generics on the one hand or duct typing on the other is at the language level. Generics are the solution for statically typed languages, and duct typing is the solution for dynamically typed languages. Generics first. Generics allow you to specify to the compiler that a given function can operate on more than one type. Rather than just the standard argument types for, you know, an integer, a string, a float, an enum, a struct, etc., we can specify a generic parameter. Then we can call the function with any type which supports the operations executed by that function. For a trivial example, we could write a single multiply function which takes two arguments and multiplies them together. We don't need to deal with overloading the function definition if we have generics. We don't need to create a version for unsigned integers and a version for signed integers and a version for each different size of floating point numbers. The compiler can handle them under that single generic definition. You get a similar benefit from quote-unquote duct typing in dynamically typed languages. The name duct typing actually tells us what we mean by that. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it swims like a duck and so on, well, it's a duck. Or, at least, it's close enough to being a duck for our purposes. To put it another way, as long as a given type has all the attributes we need to operate on it, all the data, all the methods, and so on, it's a valid parameter for a function taking a type which behaves in those ways. And so, in a way, all function calls, and for that matter all container types, are inherently generic, so to speak, in dynamically typed languages. That just falls out of dynamic typing. And that's a big part of what makes dynamically typed languages so productive. By the same token, if you want to increase the productivity of your statically typed language, providing tools for generic programming is a big part of that. And of course, if you do provide tools for generics to statically typed languages, well, then you get the other usual benefits that come with static typing. If you get your types wrong when you're trying to do something with a quote-unquote generic function or container in a dynamic language which, again, is just any function or container, well, that's a runtime error. In a statically typed language with generics, it's a compile time error. So, for example, in Python, if you pass a goose to a function that expects a duck, and the function calls the object's quack method, when you run the program, you'll get an attribute error telling you that the object doesn't have that method. It has a honk method instead, but your function doesn't know that. Whoops. By contrast, if your generic code in Rust or C++, or Java, or C Sharp, if that generic code compiles, it will run. As always, this doesn't mean you can't introduce bugs, it just means you can't introduce that particular kind of bug. Small victories, right? Like in other statically typed languages with generics, Rust marks these generic types with angle brackets around the name of the generic type, whether in function signatures or in type definitions. And by convention, across all these languages, your run-of-the-mill generic type just uses a capital T there. T for type. Easy enough to remember. If you have more than one generic, by convention, you just keep cycling through the alphabet. U, V, etc. Of course, if you make it to Z in a given generic function definition, I'm going to be quirking my eyebrow at you pretty hard. You should probably reevaluate your API design at that point. 
In terms of exceptions to that naming scheme, well, times when it's handy to indicate something else about the type by using a different capital letter to represent it are, well, they're not rare. For example, in Sean Griffin's Diesel Library, which I mentioned in the news section in the last episode, he uses R whenever he's representing generic row types. That makes some sense. Now, in all of this discussion about generic types, I've left two major points unstated. First, while I've mostly limited my discussion so far to generic types in functions, Rust, as I alluded to a moment ago, also allows us to define types themselves as generic. In fact, back in episode 3, I actually spent a great deal of time talking about two major examples of generic types in Rust, option and result. And as it turns out, lots of foundational types in Rust are generic, including vectors, the box type we use for heap allocation, all the reference counted types, lots of types. As the example of option indicates, these types are generic before compilation, but after you compile them, they become a specific instance of that type. So you start with a generic option, but you end up with an optional string or an optional I32 and so on. This process is called monomorphization. The Rust compiler takes the quote-unquote polymorphic item, one which works over many types, and creates a concrete version at compile time with a name specific to that type. And that instance only works on that one type. It's monomorphic. That's what actually gets compiled into your final executable. Now, the second thing I left out is that while being generic is great, it's fairly obvious that we won't always want to be generic over everything. A function for multiplication, for example, probably doesn't make any sense to be generic over strings, or for that matter, over random data structures we build. And actually, off the top of my head, I haven't been able to come up with any function which is actually meaningfully generic over all types. If you have an example, tell me, I'd love to know. Even a function which just prints a type's value isn't, strictly speaking, generic over all types. So how do we deal with this? Well, as you might expect, Rust gives us a way to address our need for boundaries on just how generic a function or type actually is. And in Rust, we call them traits. Interestingly, traits are also the rustic way to share behavior between different types. If you've used a language like Java or C Sharp, you'll be familiar with the concept of interfaces. And if you've used Python or Ruby, you're probably familiar with the idea of mix-ins. Interfaces and mix-ins, respectively, are the closest analogs in those languages to Rust's traits, but there are some very important differences we'll come to in a moment. Traits in Rust are a way of specifying that a given type has a given behavior. But unlike polymorphism in a classical object-oriented type system, they're actually completely orthogonal to the type definitions themselves. That is, you define traits separately from the types which implement them. Let's take an extremely common example, and in fact, the one I mentioned just a minute ago, representing a given data type with a string for printing. One way you might tackle this is by having all objects inherit from a base type, which includes a method defining how to print it. In Python, for example, all types derive from object, which has a private method called repr for representation. When you call the print function on some object, Python just calls the wrapper method on that object, which hands back a string for the print function to use. 
There are lots of benefits to doing things that way, but there are also some pretty severe limitations. Specifically, if you want to include behavior from multiple different sources, you end up needing multiple inheritance, usually via a mix-in system. And as anyone who has spent any time dealing with multiple inheritance know, that's asking for trouble. The other option in classical inheritance, and the one more common in statically typed languages, Java and c -sharp, is interfaces. In that approach, you define what methods must exist for a given object to conform to a given interface. Something like a toString method, which might be part of an interface named iPrintable. Classes then specify that they implement that interface, usually via a statement like implements iPrintable on the class definition, and they supply conforming method implementations. Now, the big upside to mix-ins over interfaces is that you get the actual implementation, because you're actually inheriting the existing behavior. And of course, you can override that in a subclass as you need to. With interfaces, you have to re-implement the behavior on every single class which uses the interface, which takes us back to our repeated code problem. This is what we were trying to avoid. The advantage to interfaces, though, and the reason Java and c -sharp prefer them over mix-ins, is that you don't run into those many, many problems which come with multiple inheritance. Rust sidesteps this whole tension by stealing a page from Haskell, for specifically from its type classes. If you remember from our early discussion of custom types back in episodes 2 and 3, Rust doesn't define the implementation details for a given type where it defines the data structure that makes up that type. And this might seem a little strange at first, coming from languages like Java or c -sharp or Python or Ruby, but there's a good reason for it. By separating the behavior of the type from its data, we're able to extend that behavior arbitrarily. The implementation blocks we supply for Rust types allow us to implement the interfaces supplied by traits elsewhere, as well as our own behavior on the objects. If we want an object to be printable, we just implement the display trait for the type. You can see an example of this in the source for this week's show notes. This approach lets us define the behavior of types by composing different elements together rather than inheriting down a linear or diamond-shaped chain. And while inheritance is powerful, and there are good reasons to include it in your programming language, so much so that the Rust team is actively exploring how inheritance might fit in Rust, composition is more powerful. Why? Well, number one, it gives us all the benefits of mix-ins in this case. We can define default implementations for traits, which types can override if necessary. But two, it also gives us the benefits of interfaces. We can define the behavior which conforming types must implement while not being bound by inheritance. It's literally the best of both worlds. When you add in Rust's strong type guarantees, what you get is something fantastic. We have the ability to specify common patterns of behavior, and the same language machinery lets us constrain generics so that we can say exactly what given functions or types are generic with respect to and then we get good guarantees about them from the compiler at compile time. For example, if we want to say that a function is generic over any type that implements Rust's display trait, that is, any type which can be nicely printed, we can just specify that in the function signature. We add a colon after the name of the generic and add the trait name, like t colon display, and we're off to the races. That should give you a taste of the power and the 
basic utility of generics and traits. Next time, we'll move on from this high-level discussion to a little bit lower-level discussion of what it looks like to use these things in practice in Rust, a little more nitty-gritty in the details. We'll look at the different kinds of traits Rust offers, how we might combine them, and what some of the current limitations are. I've painted a rosy picture today, but there are things you can't do yet. Thanks to Chris Palmer for sponsoring the show this month. You can see the full list of other sponsors in the show notes. And if you'd like to sponsor the show yourself, you can set up recurring donations at patreon.com slash neurastation. You can also give one-off donations at Venmo, Dwala, or cash.me. You can find the show notes with some fairly detailed code samples illustrating the ideas of generics and traits, as well as links to things I mentioned on the show at neurastation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter or app.net at neurastation, or you can follow me either of those places at Chris Kreitshow. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or recommend it in your favorite podcast directory that will help other would-be Rustations find it. Last but not least, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on social media, in the thread for the show on the Rust user forum at users.rust-lang.org, or you can shoot me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.